This is Top Floor, episode 42. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 42. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. If I said that I was interviewing a DJ, a pie baker, a television host, a cookbook author, and an interior designer, you would expect me to introduce at least five guests and you would be wrong. Morgan Ray is an award-winning designer who has lived an incredible life. She not only works on high-profile hotel projects, but also lives in hotels full-time. Morgan is an interior and living designer with significant hospitality cred, having worked with brands like Weston, Sheraton, Eleven Howard, Fairmont, Fountain Blue, and Cosmopolitan Las Vegas, and design firms Avrico and David Mexico Design Group. She is focused on creating and investigating the new luxuries of the world, whether on land or by sea. Today, Morgan and I are going to talk about navigating new territories through design. But before we do that, we have to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you've got a question that you'd like for us to answer, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Fiona. And she says, I own a small inn that is overdue for a facelift. What are the highest impact areas to invest in. So I think she must mean if she can only spend a certain amount of money, where should she put it? What do you think, Morgan? Well, there's three places that I would suggest. And first is the entry, you know, whether you have a porte crochet or some sort of awning, wherever they drive up, the first impressions mean a big deal. They make a big difference because they're what you see first. So making those welcoming, I mean taking a look at the plants or greenery and the lighting because people are going to a hotel to feel safe, secure. And the next part is about sleep and not only that, but showering. You need to be able to <laughs> have those two. So updating the the shower and to even like the faucets, the shower heads, you know, making sure those are working well and a mattress that alone will get you the reviews you need that'll attract more people. So those are the three things that I would suggest putting your money in. Excellent. Those are all good ideas. You have done everything from designing hotel guest rooms and public spaces to owning and operating restaurants. What drew you to hospitality? It has been with me since I was quite young. Um, and even before I was born. It was in my family, like tracing back the roots to my great grandparents in China. One was German and one was Chinese and they met uh, as he imported beer. And I found out later in life that they had three hotels that, I mean, they later got destroyed because of war, but that was there. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. It was a really cool story to trace. And then 
my mother used to work at a hotel in our small town in South Dakota. And so I started my summer job at someone say it's child labor, but I wanted, I chose to do this <laughs> like 10 years old, but to pick up cigarette butts around the pool and then work my way up into doing um, laundry, helping make the beds. And it just fascinated me. I mean, I loved being behind the front desk, but in the apartment and they had one of those one-way mirrors and seeing everyone enter, you know, and they couldn't see me. I mean, I thought it was this magical world and getting to go through the back behind the back of the house stairs, the shoots for the laundry. It just, I don't know, it, something lit me up seeing the behind the scenes. Well, in addition to a bachelor's from the Art Institute of California, San Diego, you have a master's of interior and living design, which I think is a really cool way to phrase it, from the Domus Academy in Milan. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to work on projects with students from bunches of different countries? You are in this classroom with 40 different people from 20 countries around the world, and you have to work together. And sometimes you don't even speak the same language. That was the cool part of the school and the design. And the design is a language without words. You know, you so you sketch, you use, you know, you translate, but sketching and drawing is the best way. You learned a lot how to do a global design, and it was so beneficial to have that experience at a young age. Any particular favorite project that came from that time period? One of my favorites was along the coast of France, outside of Bordeaux, they had these old bunkers, these symbols of war, and they were just abandoned sitting there. And so our project was to reinvent them. I was working with two Korean students and one Japanese student, and they all didn't speak much English at all, but we worked together to turn them into music recording studios, um, to do composing in them and, and almost like a retreat center for musicians that, you know, some would go to create music, some would be to express it and play around with it. And it ended up winning within that, the group of students uh, of my class. And we got to go out and see the bunkers and it was incredible to climb in them and see the possibilities of it. And part of our proposal was using one, um, material wood for it out because musical instruments mainly being from wood and how that would play with the acoustics and transforming a symbol of war into something more unifying and peaceful. The travel press has been pumping out all of these articles about digital nomads. I mean, that term was in use before the pandemic, but it is certainly... Um, getting a lot more Google searches after, especially as companies allow people to work from home more than ever. You, of course, are the epitome of a digital nomad. Can you walk us through some of the places that you've been over the last few years? I guess some of my memorable ones, Australia, I mean, that has a whole other story tied to it where, you know, went into it as a digital nomad and ended up there for a year and a half. But <laughs> <laughs> was that you got stranded because of COVID? Yes, that was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was wild. And I had gotten rid of, I mean, this was really the start of truly being a digital nomad because at that time I had gotten rid of everything that I owned and 
condensed it into a suitcase and, you know, backpack and whatnot. And was like, yes, I'm going to go around the world and and I'm going to do this. And then the first place I go, it was interesting because I had a gut feeling that, that to tell me to root. And I was like, this is weird. But, and then it slowly unfolded. And um, even where I got stuck, I had a suitcase in Sydney but ended up in Melbourne away from my biggest suitcase and the suitcase was packed for summer and we were going into winter. So it was very wild. Uh, but in addition to that, Panama was a place I had worked from as well as throughout Europe. I mean, it's been really fun to go through Greece, Spain, Portugal is a big favorite of mine. And then briefly dabbled in Lebanon, but that let's say I didn't get much work done there. <laughs> that was a much more lively uh, nightlife and uh, Dubai is another one of those. So in the midst of your successful design career, you sort of took this simultaneous parallel path to open a bakery, write two cookbooks and become a partner in a restaurant group. What led you down that path and did it change your approach to design at all? What led me to that was actually the the economy. I, when we took a little dip and had um, the recession back in like 2008, 2009, my hours got cut at work doing interior design. And at that time, I was like, well, what do you do? I was sitting around having drinks with another uh, interior designer and we said, you know what? We should make pies miniature. <laughs> we started testing it out and it grew and led to all these other experiences kind of blossomed out of that. I didn't really realize how it would kind of weave its way into the design work I do, but it's actually made me a better designer because you think about, you know, when you design a restaurant or you design a bakery, now having that experience in the commercial kitchen or even understanding it, like how the wholesale deliveries work or how often they change the pastry cases and all of those different operations that they don't teach you in school, you know, you, you learn by doing. And there's just, you design things that are more useful, not just beautiful. And I, that's what adds to the design lasting a lot longer. Uh, so it's, it's a win-win for both the designer and the client. Do you have any favorite pie recipes that you developed, like a strange flavor combination or anything like that? Oh, um, there was the blackberry lime meringue. Ooh. That one, and I did it as a vegan. I love baking vegan because it's just a challenge to try and make things without dairy. I have, you know, not many opinions towards that, but finding how to make a vegan meringue was like one of my biggest accomplishments. And then apple pie cookies are another one, adding a chai spice. And you take the pie crust and you make these two little, I mean, you can use a cookie cutter and make the circles for it. And you take a slice of an apple in the shape of a circle and then dust it with the apple pie seasonings and a little bit of your milk of choice, including dairy milk and kind of sandwich it in between the the crust and bake it for like 20 minutes. And you have these like pop tart, like cookies. Oh, that sounds awesome. They're really great. And a fun one that you can do that doesn't take a lot of equipment. 
Ooh, I may be trying that soon. I'll have to get your (laughs) pie cookbook and give it a whirl. So although you won in 2020, I know that you were just recently able to celebrate winning the Muse Gold Design Award due to COVID delays and all that good stuff. But it was for a project that's really near my house here in Atlanta, the Thrive Farmers Cold Brew Coffee Bar. I know that this is a very mission-driven project. And I know that you have partnered with Thrive Farmers several times over the past few years, if that's right. Can you tell us about that, what you enjoyed about collaborating with them and kind of what the project was all about? Oh, yes. This is a company that has made a commitment to their coffee farmers where they give them a price for a period of like a decade. Um, and regardless of what the market is, they've committed to paying that price to these farmers. And not only that, but helping their families in these coffee growing and tea growing regions have a place to live and um, even kind of work with the women to educate them for even maybe possibly starting their own businesses or learning and getting more education. And with that, you know, there goes the education behind why a cup of coffee should cost $5, you know, and, and it's because it helps benefit, you know, not just the barista behind the counter, but it trickles back to the many hands that make the cup of coffee. Um, I mean, it's handpicked and, and that was what the concept was about is these many hands. And they took us down, the design team down to Costa Rica and Guatemala, and we got to see the whole process, and it's incredible. And then it, you know, comes all the way to the states, and then there still has to be the roaster involved, and then the barista. It's to me a bit of a miracle that we get this kind <laughs> of a cup of coffee every single day. So linking those two very different worlds is what we did with this project, and uh, everything in that space, that their flagship location in Atlanta was. We, we strive to source it from coffee growing regions. So from all the furniture, the rugs, the upholstery. And if we couldn't, if we weren't able to, we use, you know, local artists. There's one particular table that's on a lot of Instagram moments that has this very colorful wheel. And we went down to Costa Rica because they use these ox carts to transport goods around. And so we got the wheel from one of those carts, but not only that, we found the factory that makes those wheels and it's water powered. That's how they they have water running and that's what powers them making the actual, like bending the metal for the wheel. And so, oh, wow. yeah. And so we had four more of those wheels made from this company to um, be added into the cupping table. So where you can go and, you know, try out the different coffee and pour, you know, the coffee you know, like when wine tasting, you take a little sip and you have extra. Well, there's a trough in the center of the table that it's both, there's one indoors and one outdoors and you pour it down and the wheels on that table are from that factory. That's incredible. (laughs) I cannot wait to go there. Well, in your list of awards, you also won the Radical Innovation Award in 2021 for your work on Float With Us a hospitality concept that allows guests a water view unlike any other. Essentially, and you'll correct me if I get this wrong, guests stay in sea pods that float in the ocean. 
I know that this project ignited a passion in you for seasteading, not to be confused with homesteading, but seasteading. And I'm guessing that our listeners are like me, that they have never heard of this before. Can you explain what seasteading is and what about it appeals to you? Seasteading is a movement of people that are creating floating cities in our oceans. And the goal is to have many of these by 2050 and live a semi-autonomous life where, you know, much like a cruise ship or a boat, you know, with when you have a maritime flag, but you have that for your home, you could link up with one city and then at a certain time in your life, you would you could take your whole entire home and move it to another city. So it's a little mind blowing, but for a nomad like me, you're like, wow, this is a really <laughs> this fascinating is the right idea. Idea. Right. I'm glad you explained that part because I understood the idea that they were floating, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand the idea that they could be moved, but I also couldn't figure out how they stayed in one spot. And that is what's being worked out. You know, there's been some beautiful renderings of the, the possibility of these cities and also with the waters, it's an interesting conversation about, you know, who owns these water, how to, to achieve this, because it's, it's something very unique. And they have said in, in the lovely book on sea studying that to help push this along, somebody actually needs to have a baby on a sea stud because what nationality would it be? Oh, wow. That interesting? Can you imagine being the person who was the test case <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. uh this baby is a citizen of nowhere and everywhere at the same time right right i think it's interesting because there's the movie rose island that recently came out on netflix and that talks about this sort of a concept coming or starting back in the 50s and 60s and what happened with that so it's they've started it before but now it's gaining momentum and um what I personally liked about the sea study, not only it being nomadic and, you know, if you think about, you know, a, again, a, a boat or a ship moving around, you can do that, but having that be like a home or, you know, evolving from a houseboat to this floating home and dealing with it in these oceans. I mean, we've got, a, we've got some work to do, but <laughs> and the project I had worked on was more in these shallower waters and protected areas. So We've got a bit of a ways to get there. So that's how it would stay put. Yeah, they're attached much like a buoy would be, you know, in in the ocean. So, um, but going forward, there's a lot more exciting designs coming out. They're just in the works. It's going to take time to get to that. And what is also fascinating is how in touch with nature, in harmony with the ocean and, and the resources you have to be like you aren't necessarily, at least for those pioneers starting this, aren't having people come by and pick up your garbage. You know, you really have to be in tune with what waste you create and what you do with it and how to service your home and even your food and how all of that connects, which I think all of us could learn a lot from. Part of what I was doing with going to Australia, the the mission I had for myself was I I was like, I want to learn how to live sustainably. And I certainly got that being kind of grounded out there and had time to watch waste and learn about how you can use all different 
parts of vegetables and fruits and how to compost and um even out there at the time i mean it's been a little bit more prevalent now but they had so many places where you could refill containers and so changing the kitchen around where you don't have to buy anything in plastic you just go into the store and refill them in australia it's quite normal for you to bring your own cup to the cafe and use it like you were almost scolded for not in some of the major cities and i was like this is amazing so they had ceramic ones and silicone lids and it that was their culture to do that for water or for whatever for coffee oh yeah. got it. so got it, they got weren't it. using the the paper and so that that's sorry one example of you know um of waste, you know, changing that in a way that it's an easy model that we could adapt from. It's a good practice for floating in the sea. (laughs) I'm always thinking about, oh, how would my client like do coffee on the ocean? And, uh, you know, the coffee grounds are another thing. And so Australia had the the dissolving coffee, you know, the freeze-dried coffee that was really prevalent out there. And I was like, oh, this could actually work on Sea pods are floating on the ocean. Mm-hmm. It would have to taste a little better than your old school Folgers crystals, but yes, I agree. <laughs> yes. We need to put Thrive Farmers on the case of making delicious instant coffee that will bring your projects full circle. What are some of the other design considerations when it comes to ocean dwellings, like both the aesthetic and the practical? Well, it it's with the water and the sun. Those are the really harsh out there. You know, you think about the humidity and the sunlight being, you know, without proper shading. I mean, you really have to make sure like your fabrics, for example, are made out of materials that can withstand that. So whereas on land, a lot of times we're thinking that, you know, these natural fibers are really great. It can be better to have ones that were maybe made out of recycled materials on the ocean because it it actually works and is durable for that. So huh. you know, looking at these with you know the fishing nets are a big issue in the water. There are solutions in place where actually this is one of the solutions out of Portugal that's happening. They have satellites scanning the ocean for these nets and also mountains of plastic and. They're finding them, but also collecting the plastic and making them into fibers for textiles. There's actually an interior designer in um, the Azores working on this already. So, you know, we can start using that and you have these recycled materials that are done in ways that look um, very high end and are very hard to tell the difference. Wow. There's some really beautiful rugs coming out that, you know, from companies that are luxury or more high end that are made out of these materials. And it's, it's come a long way, you know, that's exciting. Yeah. All right. This sounds like a good time to take a break. We'll get right back to my conversation with Morgan Ray, but real quick, the radical innovation awards we mentioned have extended this year's deadline to July 7th, 2022. You can get all the details at radicalinnovation.io. After this, Morgan shares some breaking news and we talk about outer space. Of course. Be right back. Top Floor is supported by SiteMinder. 
in an online world that never sleeps, you can't afford to be off ever. So how do you keep rooms full, guests raving, costs down, and staff happy? SiteMinder is the world's leading hotel commerce platform that provides hoteliers like you with the tools you need to sell, market, manage, and grow your business, all from a single dashboard. It's technology without the need to be super techie, intelligence without the detective work, and simplicity without leaving anything out. To learn more about how SiteMinder can help your hotel grow online, visit siteminder.com forward slash top floor. As you know, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with a couple of really specific practical tips to try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. In the process of your work, what have you learned about our relationship to the oceans that you wish everyone knew? One of the top things I've learned is that we're all connected to it, even if we're in the middle of the US, for example, because the rivers kind of go into the water and also our food. And so I had uh, received some great tips from a coral restoration group. And one of them that they said that we all can take from is pretty simple, choosing uh, organic produce, which is like, what? But by choosing produce that hasn't had chemicals on it, it actually doesn't get into the water streams and then go into the ocean. And so by making that choice in the way we shop and do our groceries, it actually has a positive effect on the oceans. Start small and maybe pick, maybe you switch your apples or something like that, Uh, but it can really shift our behaviors. And if we want to expand upon that, the lotions, sunscreens, making sure that they are reef safe, coral safe um, is huge, especially when we, you know, it's summer right now. Some of us are going to Europe. Some of us are going to the ocean, but checking the label to make sure it says it's ocean and reef safe is a really uh, simple way to help out. We are big consumers of sunscreen in this household. And I'm definitely going through all of the bottles as soon as we're done here today to see what brands, if any of the ones we have, are safe. That was something I had no idea about. So I'm really glad to have learned that. So shifting gears a little bit, what are some ways that hotel guest room design should be different from your bedroom at home? the hotel should reflect the city that it's in, the locale. Because for me, it's kind of odd to be in one place. And then if you're with certain brands and you can wake up in the same city and it looks the same and you have no sense of where you're at, that's my personal opinion. I agree with you. I really like the sense of place and the sort of storytelling that comes from different elements of the local art scene or culture woven into the design of a guest room. That is a a high on my list of important things when I'm making those buying decisions for staying in hotels. So speaking of which, I am self-employed. I could theoretically follow your path of working from anywhere. I'm really bad at that. If I say to myself, Oh, I'm going to take this trip and I'll do a little work and do a little this and do a little that. 
I end up doing none of the above because I'm like, I should be working. I should be sightseeing. And so I just like get stuck in this, you know, being paralyzed by indecision. What tips do you have for somebody like me who should be able to do this, but is not good at it yet? (laughs) Well, I think one of the things that people can try and do is live like a local. It's part of being a nomad is learning a new lifestyle. And so if you think, okay, I'm going to, you know, set up my time here, like it would be a local, then you, you feel less stressed. You know, you you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go get coffee when the locals do. I'm going to, um, have my weekends and save that for exploration. That might be a way to start. Um, and then as you get into the nomadic flow, then you'll learn how to shift around your schedule and be like, actually, my weekend can be Tuesday, Wednesday. And I like it because <laughs> no one's at the museums. So that, that mentally can kind of help because it, it's a whole new world when you when you travel and you're like, wow, I can do whatever I want whenever I I choose. And I've I've been there feeling like, oh, I should be doing this and this and this. Well, you don't have to. Okay, I'm gonna take those tips. I have three little practice trips planned for this summer where I'm going to go to states I've never been before, cities I've never been to before for a couple nights to practice working from the road. So I will report back and let you know how I did. (laughs) We've reached the point in the program where we predict the future, look into our crystal balls and try to determine what's coming next. Morgan, after you build a hotel in the middle of the ocean, which I have no doubt you will do, what is the next frontier? I don't mean this to sound silly. I'm very sincere. Have you thought about designing for outer space or some other maybe seemingly outlandish place? Oh, you you strung my heart <laughs> with space. It's actually what I chose Domus Academy to begin with is in their brochure for advertising the master program was space design. And it's been a part of me as much as hospitality. And during the pandemic, I held a four-month research project where I interviewed people on their needs for space travel, like pre-flight, in-flight, post-flight, and those needs. And how did people know what their needs were? Or were they just guessing like well, I think I'm going to need some headphones. <laughs> well, like, what we, did they say? There, there's, there's certain ones that we went through different kind of options. You know, would you like a drink before your flight? You know, when you're in space, do you want a party? Do you want art? You know, and kind of going through these different activities because of time, you know, and, and what would that be? I mean, you're in, you, you know, you're, you would be away from your family for quite some time if, I mean, we were going for Mars and really studying like the travel to Mars, knowing that there are some smaller, you know, space travel flights that will be happening before that. But we said, why not study for the the real deal, the long distance and how to break the big project. project, (laughs) Yes. And, um, and then also reintegration because, you know, these people that are going to be doing space travel, they most likely have seen them. you know, the world, the, the, the earth, you know, travel, been being a global nomad for quite some time. And then seeing something that a small percentage will have seen 
what do you do? How do you reintegrate? And where maybe your family doesn't even know what you've seen. And, you know, researched a lot of what the astronauts feel like. And so it's a, it was a really interesting study about those needs and how to bring people back in and also dealing with mental health. I mean, this is a very extreme case, but making sure people are mentally well for this kind of travel. And I am all about it. I, I think this will be is a fantastic new journey for the travel and hospitality industry. And uh, like, yeah, there's probably going to be a, a hotel on the moon, you know, why not? Would you go if there oh, were? Totally. Sign me up. You would? I don't think I, I would. I think I would be scared. <laughs> I, I, I would try in regards to hospitality, anything once. Why not? All right. Well, you remain my inspiration. <laughs> so we'll have to check in after you do that. Coming back down to earth a little bit. So what about you? What is next for you? And what's next for your company? Well, this is really exciting because you are the first one, you know, getting to know this and well, your audience as well, besides my small group of friends. But on the 30th of June, we are launching a floating hotel collection, starting with the brand. So we're doing it a little different than how most would launch a hotel. Uh, we're starting from the inside <laughs> out. So, oh, tell me everything. <laughs> so for we're hosting an expose in Lisbon and it's right around the time that the UN is having their um, World Oceans Conference. Just happened. We didn't plan the timing of that, but serendipitous. Right. Though. So we're hosting a small group of people in an intimate experience. And I, don't, I haven't even told them what's going to be there, but we'll document it and be able to share it after that's hosted. But this is only a start of a series of basically building the hotel from the inside out and relooking at everything and what we can do better and be more impactful in taking it to the sea. Well, that is very exciting. We'll have to put the link to where people can see the grand reveal in the show notes for this episode. Okay, folks, before we tell Morgan goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Morgan, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Oh my gosh. Well, there was, I had this saying, I always told my mother when she would be thinking I was pretty crazy for going off and doing what I do, um, especially in nomadic travel. And I said, mom, don't worry. There's, there's always a place to stay. Right. Except there was one time when there wasn't. <laughs> oh no. Yes. I went to Tasmania and I was so excited to go to Tasmania. I'd wanted to go to this island for so long. And it was during a time when there was a festival going on in this small town called Launceston. And I had missed the bus after the ferry because the ferry was late. Uh, and somehow this lovely woman and her sister saw myself and another girl in the same situation. And they gave us a, a ride to the town while stopping to, you know, give us a little strawberry brunch. It was really sweet, but they dropped us off at the hostel. She had booked a room. I had nothing booked. And so I said, okay. And then they drove me to another place. It was all booked up. And so I'm sitting there with my suitcase, my little roller bag being like, what do I do? And so I decided to go to the festival and I checked my bag. <laughs> You're like, 
what this problem needs as a music festival. Yeah, I mean, Let's go. And, and I <laughs> the lady there and I said, what do you think? I, do you know of a hotel? I could say, you know, like anything. And she said, honey, go to the after party. She's like, check your bag there. Afterwards, there's McDonald's to go to and it's 24 hours. Go get yourself some breakfast. You're going to be just fine. And so I did that. I, I took my wheeler bag to the after party. They said, we don't have a coat check. I said, yes, you do. And you're storing my bag and I'm, <laughs> they let me. Oh my God. And the, the, the manager was amazing. He waited after it all ended and had my bag there for me. And I had kind of like met this gentleman um, during the party and, you know, things happened. And I was like, great, maybe this guy has a place, you know, I'm good. <laughs> well, I, he too did not have a place to stay. So how did I end up stuck with this guy who ended up turning out to be really drunk? So I was like, oh my goodness. And I'm sitting here with my bag. <laughs> and he said, well, actually there's like this campground. And so we, we went and we walked like, I think it was 30 minutes. And my, mind you, my suitcase had like lost a wheel at this point. And so it was just, you know, and he was, it was a really, I was like, oh my gosh, the situation. And we get to the campsite and he actually, he had a tent pitched. So he did have a place, but this was a two person tent. And he's this giant guy from Belgium. And so it fits him. Yes, because a two-person tent is for half of a person. <laughs> a four-person tent is for two people. Why must they lie? Sorry to interrupt oh, no. you. Please and carry so on. He emptied out all his, his stuff so I could have a place to sleep. And we left all of our luggage outside the tent. And he hosted me in that tent for two nights. Total gentleman. Nothing you know, happened. And and then he taught me how to, to hitchhike <laughs> to get... Oh my! God. So yeah, that was a really crazy adventure. But um, yeah, there's sometimes when there aren't any places to stay, but <laughs> but there's hope. So did you tell your mom what happened, or is she going to be hearing about it for the first time on this her. show? I don't think I told her. But all right, Morgan's mom. Well, now you have a story that you can throw back in her face whenever you like. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan Ray, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners learned so much about seasteading and design, and I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to be on here. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes for today's episode at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 42. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.